Hey everyone, welcome back to eMidCast. I'm this month's host, Mari Namura, and I am very excited because I get to interview two awesome people, including one who I bet you'll recognize as well. Hi, I'm Chris Rakoff. So I am Andy Lichtenhell. These folks just spent their past year applying, interviewing, and ultimately matching in emergency medicine. And we are dedicating this episode to learning more about this journey to the match. Stay tuned. Before we dive into the interviews, I want to give a brief timeline of the application cycle and some data from this year's match. If you're listening to this podcast as it's coming out, it's May of 2016. And likely, if you're a third year, you're in the process of figuring out your EM rotations, both at home and away. And while you're doing this, you're making sure that you'll be able to get at least two standardized letters of evaluation, or SLOWs, from these programs. In the coming months, most folks will start gathering information for their CV, starting their personal statement, and requesting letters of recommendation. Come September 15th, ERAS will be open to submit your application, and that's the Electronic Residency Application Service. In the, in the following weeks, you'll be able to sign up for the National Resident Matching Program, and that's the NRMP uh, who actually administers the match. So October 1st is an important date to remember. This is the date that many medical schools will upload their medical student performance evaluations, or MISPs, into the ERAS system. These are a summary of your grades and comments in school thus far. October 1st is also the day that many residency programs will download your application. So as a general rule, you want anything that you have control over uploaded by the October 1st date, and ideally September 15th if possible. Then October through early February is interview season. And from talking to most classmates, it seems like the bulk of interviews occur between late November and mid-January. And But really, you can hear from programs at any point during this time period and schedule them and then go on them. In late February, you'll create and certify your final, final ROL or rank order list to the NRMP. This will be the residencies that you would like to go to in the order that you want to go to them. Residency programs have a similar process on their end. Then in mid-March is match week. This week starts off on a Monday with an email saying if you have matched or not, but it doesn't say where. If you have matched, then you hold tight and you wait for Friday to find out where you get to spend the next three to four years of your life. If you have not matched, you will work with your medical school to enter the SOAP or Supplemental Offer and Acceptance Program. The full description of this process is beyond the scope of this episode, but there are many materials online and all medical schools should be familiar with and prepared for this possibility. I also found it was helpful to learn some basic facts about the match for emergency and in general. So this is a summary of some of the data that's published by the NRMP about the match in recent years. Obviously, things change year to year and each applicant is different, so this is meant to be just a general guide, but I would encourage you to reach out to your advisors with specific questions about you and your rank lists. So according to the NRMP in 2016, there are 174 EM programs in the U.S. and nearly 1,900 positions. Of those, all of them were filled except for one position in the regular match. There were about 1,700 total U.S. applicants and about 1,500 of those matched, with leaving about 780 independent applicants and uh, 400 of those matching into it. There's also this idea of a, quote, magic number of places to rank. 
with people often saying that if you rank 10 to 12 places, it's very likely that you'll match. So where does this come from? There's an NRMP report titled Charting the Match that asks questions like this, and the most recent report online is from 2014. Basically, they take applicants who ranked anywhere from 1 to 20 programs within a given specialty in their rank list and saw what percentage of those applicants uh, matched into that specialty. Then the magic number comes from looking at the inflection point where the vast majority of people matched. So when you look at the one for EM from 2014, you can see that if you ranked about 10 programs, then over 95% of those people matched. If you rank 12, it might be more like 97 or 98%. And really the trick ends up being figuring out how many places you need to actually apply to in order to secure the 10 to 12 interviews you need so that you can rank those programs. So this is beyond the scope of this episode, but there are lots of great resources online and I have met many program directors uh, through interviewing who would love to talk to you about this for you specifically. All right, that's enough of me and the numbers. Let's talk to Chris and Andy to get their thoughts about the process. Uh, we'll start with applications, we'll move on to interviews, and round out with rank lists and matching. I also surveyed 10 of the 15 students who applied into emergency medicine in our class to get their stats and thoughts on the process, so I'll interject some of their feedback and anonymized data along the way as well. Let's start with Chris. How did you approach your application process? What was your background? How did you decide which schools you wanted to apply to? Who did you go to for help? Uh, so I looked really good on paper, and a lot of my uh, advice that I was given uh, in terms of trying to decide how many places to apply to uh, and that sort of uh, idea was that I didn't need to go off the deep end. I applied to 31 programs in total. I only applied to uh, three-year programs uh, because I am 33 years old and I want to get out practicing sooner. And my philosophy was always that if I felt like I needed to do a fourth year of training, I could go back and do a fellowship for a year or two years. Between uh, three-year-only programs and uh, geography was kind of my first cut in terms of deciding where to apply. What were your primary sources for getting information about applying? So I had a mentor that was an emergency medicine doc that I worked with from my first preceptorship, the first few months of uh, medical school. And I, I talked with him about it uh, several times. I went to uh, Nicole Diorio and people in, that, that are higher up in our emergency medicine program and, and well established in the community uh, to get advice as well about how many programs to apply to and uh, go through all of my numbers and try and decide how competitive I was. And, and I narrowed my list down from, I was starting it with over 50 that I was thinking about down to the 31 that I went uh, with. Great. Thank you. Andy, what about you? Any thoughts or things that you would add about applications? Chris brings up a lot of the same stuff I thought about. I think things that I'm glad that I did were started it really early because that sort of just like let me work on it a little bit, let it sit there in the back of my mind, open it up, and never really feel like I was scrambling to finish things. I can interrupt and say on the topic of starting early, yeah. I wish I had started first year. And just keep a list of all the things that you did that, mm -hmm. that end up going into this application because it's harder to remember at the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think to that point, I totally agree. I was, was lucky enough that I had um, I had an up-to-date CV that I had put together. And the first time I put that together, like that was such a pain trying to track about how many hours did I do this or that and what were the exact dates. And 
you know, obviously it's really important to be accurate and, and um, transparent with what you're reporting. So I, that was something that I felt happy that I had done. So that made that work definitely easier than it could have been. Um, I was glad that I, I was sort of obsessive about checking and rechecking for, you know, typos and um, like there's some formatting issues on the application that will drive you, at least drove me crazy um, that you, I just had to let go. But I think that being obsessive and combing through it repetitively um, was annoying but helpful. Um, similarly, I'm glad I started the personal statement earlier. That is, was so painful for me to write. Uh, I am glad that I was self-conscious about reaching out and asking someone to read through my personal statement. Some someone in you know in the um, our emergency medicine program, one of the physicians. Um, but I'm really glad I did that. That was good to get that level of feedback from like a person who reads these things all the time. Definitely, I had three of the emergency medicine people read it, mine, mm -hmm. and I had family read it, and mm -hmm. I think that that's there were a lot of versions and a lot of editing that went on with that. So. Mm -hmm. And people were happy to do it, they, happier they were, to do it than I would have been, honestly. Like, I, there were people who were super willing to help out. <laughs> yeah, I found that as well. I guess moving on to a related note, were your personal statements brought up very often during your interviews? Um, mine was delightfully brought up exactly one time by a wonderful man who went through and had underlined specific passages, and it's like, and I just thought this was wonderful, and I really liked how you brought this out, and this is just such a, you know, impactful statement and really made me feel like the best person in the world. Um, but that was the only time it was brought up. I think a lot of my personal statement highlighted things that I also had in other areas of my application. So there were definitely things on there that we discussed, but I don't know that it was ever specifically referenced. Huh, yeah, that makes sense, Chris. Andy, any helpful resources that you found? Um, Academic Life in Emergency Medicine has a series of video blog posts that's program directors sitting down and talking about the whole math process from like applying to through thank you notes and making a rank list. Uh, and if you just Google academic life and emergency medicine match advice or something like that, it should come up. And there's like a series of um, six videos that are like each an hour long or something like that that go into unbelievable excruciating detail on each of these points. And so if you're worried about it or want a different perspective, I think those are a really good resource. Awesome. Yeah, I found those really helpful as well. So before we move on, I wanted to share some of the data from our peers who applied into emergency medicine and volunteered some of their anonymized information to share with you on this podcast. Again, this is just meant to be a general guide, but please meet with your advisor when you're planning your own application strategy. Of the 10 people I surveyed, there were essentially three groups of applicants. One group had mostly honors in their clerkships and scored above average on step one. Those applicants tended to apply to around 30 schools and receive invites to about two-thirds of those programs. There was another group of applicants who scored closer to the mean on step one and had clinical grades that were mostly in the near honors range. This group had more variability with numbers of schools applied to, ranging from 30 to over 70. And their percent success for invitation, invitations ranged from 12% of applications leading to interview invites to closer to 90%. It seemed like better step two scores might correlate with a more successful application, but there are likely other factors at play as well. A final group of students received mostly satisfactory grades and had step one scores in the 210s. These applicants applied to at least 40 and in many cases upwards of 70 programs 
intended to receive around 10 interview invites total. I know how interested I was in information like this as an applicant myself um, and how uncomfortable people can feel sharing it. So I want to give a huge thank you to my peers for volunteering to help out with this survey. And I hope that you found this data helpful as well. Uh, so let's move on to interviews. I had a fair amount of stress thinking about how difficult it might be to schedule interviews and what type of rotation I was on. How was this experience for you two? So scheduling interviews, I thought went really easily. They were almost all for me through Interview Broker. Uh, I was on a fairly light rotation, uh, actually anesthesiology, uh, when I got most of them. So I was able to have an alert set up on my phone that whenever I got an interview from uh, ERAS or Interview Broker, it would buzz my phone and I could check it right away. Everyone was very understanding and just grab a date as soon as possible. Uh, so I ended up getting uh, seven of my interviews scheduled in a three-week period in December, which I had off, and do a long trip that just never ended, uh, but was very good. It was <laughs> it's just tiring in its own way, but saved a lot of money in the process by uh, having one-way flights instead of round trips and a lot of time. Yeah, I think um, I had a similar experience to you, Mari. The, interview, or the scheduling process itself felt stressful to me. Um, I agree, Chris. Yeah, most of them are, were through Interview Broker, which is, I mean, about as well as you could design a system. Like the system itself for me seemed really smooth. Um, I was so happy, you know, like Chris, I had a light rotation in October, uh, which is when I ended up getting most of my interview invites. Another pretty light one in November, so I could start going on some and continue to answer invites while, while I got them. Uh, and then had December off, which is when I could group almost all my interviews. Um, so I was really happy I had done that. I think also, like Chris, the best advice I got was to set up an alert from my phone. So if I ever got any email that had the word interview in it, I would get a text right away. I think it's good, to, helpful to know that Interview Broker, fortunately, makes it pretty easy to move things around. So for me, I did a lot of like checking back, checking back in a day that had been unavailable, would become available, and then I would sort of switch everything around. So in the end, you know, like so many, so much of the advice, I feel like we get like it all worked out, um, but it was a stressful, for me, it was a stressful process. I agree, it was stressful, but yeah, it worked out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez, like so much of this process. But moving on, were either of you in the lucky position of having too many interviews and actually needing to decline or cancel some of them? I did um, have to cancel some interviews after hearing stories from fellow colleagues and years ahead of me about what that experience is like waiting on trying to get inter interview invites. The main thing I tried to do was to do it um, as soon as I possibly could, you know, out of respect for both the program and for classmates who are um, applying as well. Decline as early as possible, be as gracious as possible in the in the communication and say, you know, I gave this some careful consideration. I didn't just apply to this place, you know, sp spuriously. I, I really it was, you know, on my list of places that I would potentially want to go, but I have, you know, have to narrow it down at this point and you know after further consideration I think it wouldn't be the best fit for for you or for me and I want to free that spot up for someone who would be a better fit for your program as far as I could tell the response I got from places was people were um, you know said thank you for consideration we totally understand this is part of the process and um, good luck with your interview season I didn't get any sort of blowback or negative stuff from it I agree with everything Andy said the hard part is with all the anxiety that's out there about Am I applying to enough programs to uh, get enough interviews to get the percentage chance of matching that, that I'm worried about? Uh, then 
there's this kind of gray zone where you're holding interview spots that you may end up using, you may end up not using, depending on how many offers you get back. Great, thanks. So maybe before we move on, Andy, can you summarize for our listeners what a typical interview day is like? Yeah, so a typical interview day is, at least for me, because I'm obsessive about being early, I would wake up extremely early and uh, you know try to arrive at the, at the location 15 minutes early, I would say, 10 or 15 minutes early is probably smart. Uh, and then, so kind of gather, gather everyone together, they'll take you to some central area, maybe they'll have some like continental breakfast for you to enjoy while, and then sort of give you t- pretty typically an overview of the program, oftentimes like a PowerPoint style slideshow. You'll get to likely hear from the program director or an assistant program director kind of about the like the statistics of the program, what the curriculum looks like, all that kind of thing. There'll be an opportunity to ask questions. And then I think at most places they sort of would split the group in half. Half the group would go on some sort of tour the other half would stay and and go through interviews. I don't. There was a range. I think usually is at least four 15 minute interviews up to I think I had eight maybe or so or nine at one place. Uh, and then so that's the morning. And then there's usually a lunch, which is like another social opportunity with residents. And then they uh, you'll flip flop the groups. The other half will go on the tour, and the um, the half that toured in the morning will have interviews in the afternoon. And then there's sort of a little wrap-up session, and then that's about it, I think. Yep, it was about the same for me, too. Uh, Without divulging any specific questions for a program, what were general themes that you noticed residencies liked asking about? Any additional thoughts for preparing for interviews? I think it's hard. I think the interviews are, you're going to get all sorts of different questions, and sometimes it'll be something that you've spent a lot of time thinking about, and sometimes it won't be. And I think... One of the most important things to remember uh, is that they just want to know if you, they can work with you. And so long as you talk and you have an intelligible answer and you don't even necessarily need to answer the questions directly, but if you can say something that is fluid and reasonable, then it, it's going to be good enough for that moment. I'd say anything you put on your application is fair game. And I talked with many people who recalled vivid stories of, oh yeah, this person put that they could play guitar on their application, but then when I handed them a guitar, they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't get in here. (laughs) Uh, And it seemed like a recurring theme that that there's some degree of fact-checking that goes on, uh, either directly or subtly uh, as they just ask you questions. So a lot of it was going through my history, because I took a more circuitous path to, to medicine than, than some people do. And for me, the most important preparation was kind of thinking about the messages that I wanted to convey to the programs about why I would be a good candidate for them. Okay, I want them to walk away remembering this one or these two things about me uh, at the end. And you can find a way to answer the question such that you make sure you point out those things. I like that. I think that's good to try to have a uh what are you trying to project or what do you want them to, what themes are you trying to strike? Because I think, yeah, I think that they want to take something away. You want, you want it to be, uh, you want it to be a thing that you want them to take away. Um, I think honestly, you'll hear this so much, but for me, the hardest question was what questions do you have? (laughs) And yeah, I, I, you know, I had some, a couple of, um, interview slots that were just, just that question. Like just, 
what other questions do you have? What other questions do you have? And that honestly was, I think, the hardest question for me or, or interviews where I had to just sort of um, was more free form, which was actually a, a lot. I would say the majority of my interviews were less uh, formal questions like, like I think I expected going in and more just sort of chatting, asking what questions I had, that kind of thing. I think the thing that I did that was the most valuable to prepare, I wish I had um, done a little bit more like Chris had talked about and come up with some things I wanted people to take away. That would have been helpful. But what I did do that I liked was I had a list of both generic questions uh, and then I would also, you know, the night before interviews, I would look at that and then I would also try to write down some specific questions that were that I had that were appropriate to that program that, you know, that I really um, wanted to specifically know. And I think to have a, a standard list of the things that are important to you in a program helps. Uh, so I would always ask about ultrasounds to try and compare answers on, on what the, uh, the feedback system was and, and the quality improvement uh, setup and how that worked. And it was something that I could compare every program based on their answers to, to, to that. And it was also a question that I could throw in when uh, I was talking to someone. And if you can ask your question so that you show that you know something about your interviewer, I think that also helps. Like if you're asking, oh, that's next level. Like that, what? What that's, that's definitely next level. <laughs> well, that, makes, that takes knowing who's interviewing you. It does. And some places I knew, some places I didn't. Some places I found out five like, minutes before and I'd pick up my, my phone and, yep, I'd, I'd sit in the green room and, and I'd be like, up tell me about your toxicology fellowship at blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and yeah. I, I wouldn't that's say amazing. that, but I, I would say... So I, I know you're a toxicologist. What, what, uh, can you tell me about the, the poison center locations? <laughs> <laughs> what would my experience with that be? That's awesome. And That's Especially great. if it was something that was interesting to me and that was important to me. I also found the what questions do you have really hard, especially after a long day. I often would just start by asking the person who's interviewing me what their main role was there, um, mm. what their role was in education, and just to get a sense of kind of what I would do, what what I would see them as if I was a resident there, and then and that usually just led to other questions because they would tell me about their research or they would tell me about um, you know leading a fellowship program and something. And um, I think naturally it's easier to have a conversation about a specific person and what they're interested in because I do I have lots of questions about all sorts of things, but it's hard to know that you're asking the right person the right type of question. You guys have any go-to questions that were just like awesome questions you were glad you asked. I always asked every program director just what changes they saw coming down the line over the next three or four years. Most of it is just figuring out what's important to you and getting the answers to those questions. I wanted to know about how the pediatrics uh, was set up, whether you had a single block that was your only time doing pediatrics or whether there was a trickle of shifts that you would go to throughout the year to see seasonal variation. That was something that, that I was interested in at every program. I would often ask how difficult situations were handled with residents, how feedback was given and received, um, if they've made changes to the residency based on that feedback, and what were some examples. Just to kind of get a sense of if something bad happens or if I get sick or whatever, how would, how would it look for me if I was in this program? I've heard a lot going into interviews from people, oh, it's, you know, it's really different than the dynamic in a medical school interview. It's much less you trying to sell yourself to a program and much more like, you know, you ha you're sort of in the driver's seat and the program is trying to convince you why you should go there. I was curious if you guys had that, if that experience matched up for you or if, or how you felt about that. 
think that it was more of a mix of both. It's a, the selection process goes both ways in this one, and it's trying to find just the right fit because not everyone is going to feel like county program is right for them versus academic program is right for them versus some sort of mix of the two. I think I agree with Chris in that it's there's a little more of that. I definitely still felt on the spot with plenty of interviews in terms of them kind of wanting me to prove myself a little bit in, in my um, response. But then I actually found it was at each program. It seemed like there was someone who was a little bit more like, I'm going to really drill down about you. And there's someone else who's like, I'm going to kind of be your pal and we're just going to have a conversation. And I don't know how much of that's planned versus just varying interview styles. Um, there certainly is a thing at some programs where, they want each person to ask about kind of different qualities or types of questions. And so they'll have, they'll each have lists and they'll kind of get right. through that list of questions. And then usually they'll just talk after that until the time is up. It feels a little more collegial than med school interviews to me, but not as fully relaxing as possibly build. Anything you're really glad that you brought with you for your interview day or frustrated you, you had but didn't want to carry around? Uh, I debated long and hard about whether I was the type of person who would carry one of those little leather folios. <laughs> and were you? <laughs> Ultimately, I was the type of person, and I'm glad. I'm not ashamed. I did put, like, after very earnestly, like, reading some advice blog or something like that, put, like, copies of my resume in there, or my CV in there, and the one paper that had been published, and I definitely never used I'd, like, spilled Kool-Aid on those day one and never replaced them, never gave them to anybody. <laughs> Uh, but I was glad to have, like, a notebook and it. Definitely decided early on I did not need a leather for you. <laughs> and I had my, uh, my scalpel and my trach hook, and that's all I need to carry with me. <laughs> no. Uh, I, I brought very little. I had uh, gum mm. and uh, a pen and a folded-up piece of paper. And... Yeah, I was glad to have a pen just to write little. Sometimes oh, yeah. I'd write little notes about what we talked about because I knew I was likely writing them a thank you note later and also just to remind myself oh, if that's a person I want to reach out to about palliative care or whatever, then um, that's who that was. Any other logistic stuff you remember being helpful while you were traveling? Maybe everybody knows this, but I had never traveled with a suit before in mm -hmm. my life. And I did not, I would also went on like a, I don't know, two and a half, maybe almost three weeks stint of being out on the interview trail. So um, I looked up some YouTube videos on like magic ways to roll up your suit so it doesn't get wrinkled, which do not work at all in my experience. But luckily, I have a genius partner who talked me into buying a $30 little um, steamer to steam my suit, nice. which was brilliant. Major things that I used heavily were Uber, were Airbnb, oh and were my Google Calendar. Yeah. Could not and have it, done it without those things. If oh, I didn't yeah. have those things, I Like would. five years or even two years ago? Yeah. <laughs> How did people survive? I don't know. There? Did they have to write them down? <laughs> yeah, like you had to have a map. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, what did you guys think about the socials, and uh, did you do any shadowing in the emergency department? Yeah, I attended the social event every place that I went to. This is weird, but also I just would feel like just the vibe of like the place that we went, whether it's at a resident's house and they got like Indian takeout, or um, it was at a brew pub or whatever. I just kind of helped give me a vibe for like the program, the people, the city. One time I got food poisoning at one program and <laughs> had to travel while terribly ill and like rolled into town just as I was beginning to feel like a human being again and 
rolled straight from like the airport to still went to the social thing that night um, because I thought it was really helpful. I also thought it was going to be helpful to shadow. Going into it, I was certain that I was going to shadow every single place that I went. I only did it once. It was maybe moderately helpful to me, uh, but I, I just got too tired. I, I wanted to, but it just it felt like too much to me. I uh, also went to every social dinner uh, the night before my interviews. I think that they were helpful in the extreme situations. For instance, I had one dinner that I went to where one of the residents got just completely drunk, and that certainly influenced my view of that program. Uh, or there was one program where there were only two residents that showed up, and so that kind of starts making you think, well, is there a reason? Is it, are they worked too hard? Is it, they, they just can't make the time or they don't feel it's a priority to, to meet with the people coming in? But I think that it can give you some valuable information. They can give you some, uh, answer some questions that you may not want to ask in a more formalized setting. I think it's helpful to know that the social event is not the only time that you can have low-key conversations with residents during your interview trip. There's oftentimes cooked in throughout the interview day itself uh, to have lunch with the residents, that the chiefs may come around to chat with the folks that are in between interviews. Uh, you can talk to them during the tour. So if you can't make the social, know that that's okay and you still have a chance to get a vibe for the program on the interview day itself. All right, some post-interview etiquette. Thank you letters. Who'd you write them to? And paper or emails? I wrote email. I, I did not feel the need to, to buy stationery. I did write to the program director at every location, the coordinator at every location, and I wrote to everyone I interviewed with at almost all the schools. And I would wait two to three weeks after my interview I know some people do it right away, but my thought was this is another point of contact where they'll think of me again. I think something that I learned, was interested to learn, is that it's different for different specialties, the expectation around thank you notes. I had some internal medicine friends who at almost every program were told not to send thank you notes. Talk to someone who's going into ENT, and there it's mandatory that you write a handwritten thank you note, apparently, to every single person you interview at every single program. Um, so I think it's worth getting some, like, you know, EM-specific advice on that. It's such a weird um, thing. Um, I think it's a character flaw of mine that I find it really difficult to write thank you notes. Uh, I did write them. I wrote them by hand on paper and mailed them to pretty much every place. There was one program I went to where I was so grateful they specifically said, please do not send us thank you notes. Um, yeah, but other than that, I wrote them pretty consistently. I wish I had written them to the coordinators. I didn't do that. I wasn't that thoughtful. Chris, can you summarize for me how you went about making your rank list? Definitely. So for me, I'm married, and having lots of input from your partner, I think, is very important. I think the factors that uh, weighed very heavily were uh, location uh, and networking opportunities that would be available, and then you have to factor in how you feel about the program. And I think a lot of the that is your gut instinct and then looking at those things that I wrote down after every uh, visit. How long are their shifts? Are they eight hours versus 12 hours? That makes a big quality of life difference. I, I tried to look at all the factors and every place was different. So I had a top four that I went back and forth and back and forth and at some point in time, each of my top four were my number one on my rank list. And I think that you can put as much time as you want into it. I, I think a lot of it comes down to just 
how did you get along with the program director, with the residents? How do you see yourself fitting in in a, a particular location? I think I, in a lot of ways, had a similar experience, which is interesting because I, at some point on my interview trail, I had gotten advice from, you know, just probably like throughout medical school, you can get conflicting advice within the space of a single day, polar opposite advice from people. But at some point I had, someone had told me about their experience and said, yeah, you know, when I remember when I was interviewing and I just walked into this place, at this program, and I just knew, like, this is the spot for me, wasn't a doubt in my mind, this is the place I need to be. I maybe heard that from a couple of people, and I don't know that I ever actually had that experience. I felt like, I think similar to Chris, there were a number of places that I thought, you know, were a great program, I liked the people, it was in a, a great place. So I think I did a lot more sort of weighing places against each other. Uh, I think it was, what seemed difficult to me is it to me at least it seemed like there were two sort of big columns, and one column would be sort of like the logistical stuff, you know, do you like the like the city? Is it close to the recreation activities you like to do? Do you have family in the area? Is it a good fit for your partner? You know, you have kids and you have relatives available to help out with childcare, all that logistical stuff. And for me, that seemed like kind of one big column, and then the other one is, you know, not really related to that, is how did you like the program? Like, how good of a fit is the program for you? And those things to me were, it was hard for me to kind of lump those together and figure out, man, how do those two things sort of weigh against each other? Uh, so I think that was the thing that made the process kind of difficult for me. I think in talking to other people who were kind of facing these decisions, something that I feel like would be helpful to think of is if, you know, let's say you have two two places you want to either that you want to go to if you put place A above B in your mind and imagine opening that envelope and seeing it do you feel happy or do you feel slightly disappointed that it wasn't actually B you know and like run those kinds of thought experiments so i would sort of do that to try to kind of help adjust my list i had the uh, a very unusual but lovely experience of running my rank list past um, past someone who I've used as kind of a mentor for the past four years. And his method of doing it was that he said, okay, tell me about each of the schools that you interviewed at in the order that you went to them and for about one to two minutes each. And then he took notes and I couldn't see what he was writing. And so I kind of went through and I was like, oh, and I, you know, I went, well, I was in the same city. I went to this place and, you know, I went on and on about my different choices, kind of what I was weighing in my head about them. And then I got to the very end and he turned back and he'd taken some notes on the individual schools, but mostly he'd written a grade next to them that was like from A plus to C minus. And he'd compared the different programs. He's And he said, I was listening to what you said, but mostly I was looking at the expression on your face while you were describing them. And then he's like, so based on that, I think you should rank these ones first. These ones will be kind of your like middle section, and these ones will probably be lower down. <laughs> Did that end up matching up pretty well to what you put? Yeah, it was, with the exception of maybe a program or two, it was pretty similar to what my rank list ended up being. Yeah. All right, and that wraps up another session of EmigCast. But before we go, where are you guys headed next year? Thrilled to be staying here in Portland at OHSU for the next three years. I am going to Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I will be joining the good folks at Highland in Oakland, California. 
Thanks everyone for listening and a huge thanks to Chris and Andy for volunteering their time and to those who answered our survey data. Stay tuned for our June episode where we'll hear the first in a series of origin stories where Andy will actually be interviewing the one and only Josh Corning.